Hello, welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Linsky. On today's show, what does Labour's mishandling of the Rochdale by-election controversy tell us about the leadership's judgment and the persistent challenge of anti-Semitism? Plus, 30 years after Tony Blair became Labour leader, why do Blair and Mandelson inspire such hysteria every time they rear their heads? We'll discuss new Labour derangement syndrome. And in the extra bit for supporters, is platforming still a thing? We look at the ramifications of Tucker Carlson's excruciating interview with Vladimir Putin. Let's meet the panel. Matt Green is a comedian and social media star. Hello, Matt. Hello. Uh, you did your duty by watching Rishi Sunak's entire encounter with the great British public on GB News. Was that a worthwhile endeavour, both you watching it and the actual event? Yeah, I, I still don't quite know why I did end up watching it all. I, I planned on watching just a few minutes to kind of get a sense of it. And then I just found it quite hypnotic. Because I don't know if you've seen any clips of it. It's genuinely the weirdest filmed thing I think I've ever seen in terms of political TV. The camera work was incredibly fluid and was very, basically gave you seasickness watching it for more than a few seconds. But the weirdest thing about it was that it kept focusing on his back. Like it was all from behind Rishi Sunak, like they didn't have the right shots. It was like a film where they'd had forgot, they'd lost one of the cans of film, you know, and then, oh, we're going to have to use the coverage from the It was all in his back. And Rishi Sinek was wearing a white shirt, I think presumably to kind of look like he was kind of a normal bloke or something. Normal but bloke. that just meant that because no he didn't have him. a jacket on, you could see his mic pack sort of tucked into his trousers, which normally you might catch a glimpse of occasionally. But because it was all on his back, you just it just became the show of Rishi Sunak's mic pack. It was very, very odd. So I found the I just was all the way through going, are they going to change this? And they never really did. They kept focusing on his back and then occasionally you'd get a shot of his face. Um, I mean, he, what he said was fairly boring. He didn't say anything particularly exciting. The audience were kind of handpicked, I think, to give him questions that were vaguely useful, except for a couple of kind of live wires about COVID vaccines. There was some real kind of like Begbie vibes from the, the vaccine injury, wasn't it? He was like, there's a lot of sort of bobbing and weaving. It was as like, and the thing about it's that about moment, to kick off. Yeah, the thing about that I've moment never was, seen that before in my life. I mean, I've seen aggressive questioning on right. TV before, but yeah. there's something about it being GB News that that was particularly strong because two things. One, that is very much their vibe. So you didn't get a sense that anyone was going, oh, no. I think they were going, oh, yeah, this is the kind of thing we talk about all the time. Yeah. But the other thing is, because it was GB News, there was a tiny part of you thinking, maybe they forgot to book security. <laughs> maybe they didn't have anyone that in the audience, you know, watching out for this kind of stuff. And if the guy went for it, maybe that would have, you know, been pretty bad. So, yeah, it was. I just found it genuinely quite hypnotic. And, um, and my favourite moment was right at the end, the presenter brought out a box to sort of, I think there was meant to be like extra questions in the box, but Rishi never ended up touching the box because he ended up saying, hang on, no one asked me a question about the economy. And they went, oh God, yeah, we should ask you a question about the economy. And then they sort of went, anyway, got no time for the box, bye. And it was, it was, yeah, it was very silly. I liked um, the his vibe with the, with the vaccine man, where it was very much kind of like the sort of the junior manager of a pub. Just like, <laughs> all right, mate, yeah. you know, come, tell you what, We'll just get you a free... I'll talk to someone, yeah. We'll get, you, we'll get you a free pie. Let's just all calm down and have a good night, right? <laughs> it's hello to political commentator Alex Andreu. Hi, Alex. <laughs> the other thing was, I'm sorry to mention Sunak's size once more, but the mic pack was about yeah. half... You know, it was like when you put a 10p piece next to a figurine to sort of show scale. There was also a jug of water next to him, all yes. sides, which was clearly too big. And again, it felt like they'd deliberately done that to be like, he's like Tom Thumb. That's, a massive... that's, how, they anyway. put, that's how they pull it off in The Hobbit. Yeah, yeah. 
so when the Tories aren't ranting about cultural diversions and votes, um, they might want to talk about the economy, as we saw there, um, because that's the issue that most voters actually care about. What do the latest figures say? Um, nothing good. Um, the inflation is stuck on 4%, so that hasn't gone further down. Core inflation, more worryingly, has nudged slightly up. Um, and core inflation tends to be the thing the Bank of England looks like when it decides rates. So uh, smart money is that there won't be a cut on rates this month. We'll see what happens next month. Now, uh, we record before the latest GDP figures, but they're expected to show a small contraction, which means we will be in recession because we will have had two quarters back to back of a contraction. Now, <laughs> Conservative com commentators are very, very keen to point to this being a paper recession or a technical recession. recession. They keep saying all uh, that because it's only 0.1 right, minus. Okay, yeah. um, but I have to say, I'm looking here at the the growth figures for, say, you know, quarter two, 22 is plus 0 0.1. Quarter three, 2022 is minus 0 0.1. Four is plus 0.1. Right. Um, and, and whenever there is a 0.1 nudge, no one says, well, it's just paper growth. It's technical <laughs> growth. Yeah, yeah. You know, everyone gives themselves a big green tick and goes, yeah, we've done it, guys. So, you know, minus is minus, especially considering that Hunt called his March growth the growth budget and his autumn statement an autumn statement for growth. Um, so they've thrown everything at the economy and it's not responding. It's mm. flat. I mean, however you look at it, it's stagnant. That's the bottom line. Maybe he shouldn't have brought that up then. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, it's columnist and author Marie Leconte. Hello, Marie. Hello. Uh, we're recording on Valentine's Day. Deliveroo and Uber Eats drivers are on strike. Uh, why is this a big deal? Um, so it's actually the second strike they've done recently. They did another one in early February. And so they they go on strike and they're asking people to not order, to not cross, I guess, the kind of like delivery picket lines, to not order mm. anything on Deliveroo, Uber Eats, any of those websites, and especially at peak hours on those days. So, I mean, th they're striking because uh, they want better pay and better working conditions. Um, I'd really recommend actually one of the organisers of the strike wrote a first person piece for The Guardian where he just talks about life as a delivery driver. And it is absolutely harrowing. So mm. he works, you know, like, six hours a week, six days a week. And the main thing as well, he's saying that the pay has got so bad that they just end up having to essentially like risking death several times a day, every single day, because they just have to be so speedy in order to make even just the minimum wage. Like, that's the only way they can make, not even a decent wage, but just actual minimum wage by going way too fast and taking risks, etc. So yes, no, I, I think it's actually a very, very worthwhile uh, thing. And I really, really hope they succeed. The day after we record, there are by-elections in Wellingborough and Kingswood, which should go very well for Labour, but nobody is talking about them. They are talking about the chaos vortex of the Rochdale by-election. Simon Danchuk, booted from Labour for sexting a teenager, is standing for reform. The Greens have dropped candidate Guy Otten over old Islamophobic tweets. George Galloway is back in shit-stirring opportunist mode. And Labour's Azar Ali has been disowned after leaked comments about Israel. And it's too late for the party to replace him, so there will be no Labour candidate. Given that this is also where Gordon Brown made his notorious bigoted woman comment in 2010, is Rochdale cursed? Apologies to listeners in Rochdale. Um, Alex, talk us through what 
Ali said, what came out initially and then what came out that finished him off? Okay, so the first report was of him saying that Israel allowed the October 7th attacks to go ahead on purpose in order to have an excuse to start a war with Gaza, basically. The vast majority of people resolved that by, by making a reasonable assumption that the intelligence and security failed. Ali, unfortunately, resolved it by jumping on a conspiracy uh, theory that Israel knew that they were yeah. warned, but the leadership chose to ignore it because it wanted war. And I mean, considering the political repercussions, that is just dumb, just unfathomably dumb. Well, like dumb. a lot of conspiracy theories, yeah. they don't actually make sense. Now, the next day, more of the recording surfaced in which Ali defended McDonald's uh, comment from the river to the sea, Labour MP that w also had the whip withdrawn, I think. Which is rubbish, but not beyond the pale. But again, he supplemented it with a plainly anti-Semitic trope that the press is riven with Jews who are sort of controlling the message. So, I mean, just awful anti-Semitic rubbish on both occasions. Well, Labour's position changed based on the second leak, but they seemed unusually forgiving over the initial conspiracy theory. Mm. Um, and given that Rebecca Long-Bailey and Kate Osamore and uh, other less high-profile uh, figures on the left had been penalised for less, what, just, what were they thinking there? Is that just pure factional hypocrisy? Because I'm not, you know, because Ali is like, that you know the sort of leadership's guy or was it simply that it was impossible to replace him and so maybe if they just tried to get on with it it would yeah. go away i mean it's a complicated one i've seen several accounts with well-placed sources mari aurora and sky news being one for instance mm. all of whom report that as soon as starman knew of this he asked dali whether there was anything more that was going to come out was assured there was not was offered a retraction and an apology and crucially then consulted with Jewish bodies within the Labour Party mm. and local leaders of Jewish community as to whether they could countenance Ali staying on, considering that at this stage there was no way of actually replacing him, and they agreed. It's confusing because he actually has a track record of working against yeah. extremism, working with Jewish groups... So, and, and there were actually some public signs of that, like Louis Elman publicly backed him. The Jewish Labour Movement uh, uh, chair, Mike Katz, uh, warned that handing the by-election to George Galloway would be quite a pyrrhic victory if you want to advance the cause you want yeah, to advance. Yeah. So then the second thing coming out, I think, is less about its content and more about there being a second thing, which would mean there could be a third and a fourth and it would just be a, a drip drip until it happened. And at that point, the decision was made. Um, now, Long Bailey did not have the whip withdrawn, I think. I think she was sacked from the front bench. Yes. Um, which I, I, I think it's fair, no, but I, I think it's fair enough to have higher stand, standards for people in your shadow cabinet. I, well, I, is it know, not? But it was for a very minor thing. I thought the yeah. message that was being sent then, she because she did not apologise for sharing a Guardian interview in which Maxine Peake advanced a conspiracy theory about Israel, and I thought the message there was like, if you cross this line by one millimetre 
then you're out. I Not necessarily out of the party, but out. So I don't really I don't see how they could have yeah. could have said I don't well, disagree. this overt conspiracy theory from his own mouth. I don't disagree different. with the con with the comment being minor. It's just that the timing of Long Bailey's was actually while Labour was trying to first deal with this thing, okay. was under investigation by the, the commission, and she was in the shadow cabinet. Kate Ossimo's comment, I think, is less egregious, I guess, uh, on the face of it, but she does have several past blots on her copybook. They are rather personal and sad, and people can look them up. But I would say that her standing within the party was not as solid as it could be. But it doesn't help, <clears throat> does it? It doesn't It doesn't not give the impression of double standards. Look, would either of them have been given a second chance where they best chums with Starmer? I suspect yes. More importantly, would either of them be given a second chance if their name was already printed on a Labour ballot two weeks before an election? I suspect also, yes. Maybe it's about that rather than, I'm, I don't know. Well, briefly, the comments were recorded in October and released now for maximum damage to Labour and in sort of two doses. Mm. What do we know about the source of the recording? Do we know? We, don't know? we don't know anything about it. All we know for sure is that someone sat on this for a very long time. Um, so whether it was the person that eventually passed it to the mail, whether it was the mail, I don't know. But um, I would suggest that all the public interest uh, arguments that apply to this kind of recording coming out maybe would apply more strongly at a time when there can actually be a change of candidate. Um, and this might indicate that this was more about getting the Labour Party in as difficult a position as possible. Zimri, was, do you have any sympathy for that reasoning that, you know, given his track record, he didn't have a sort of known history of anti-Semitism, you couldn't replace him? Uh, do, is, is there, do you have any sympathy for that sort of logic, despite the fact it's led to this enormous mess? Or do you think that they should just, in this situation, you always just like act decisively? I do. I think it was kind of an impossible situation, like for all the reasons that were outlined just now, like A, because his name was on the ballot already, B, because George Galloway, of all people, you know, like you, you do not want to be responsible for George Galloway being in Parliament. Mm. That could be a very mm. easy attack line from the Tories as well. So whenever Galloway does Galloway stuff, the Tories could go and guess whose fault it is. Um, and you know, also, I think that the one thing that wasn't mentioned in, is that there's going to be an election in the next year. And I believe, and I'm, I'm not saying I'm certain, but I believe the understanding partially was as well. Well, if he wins, we can probably get him deselected. Like he, he yeah, will yeah, be yeah. on very close watch. And if he, as much as that, like, breathes wrong once in Parliament, then we can get him deselected, and he will be like this tiny, tiny little footnote. You know, he was in yeah. Parliament for six and a half months, and we never have to talk about him again. And no, congratulations that. on your um, new job cards from Central <laughs> Office. <laughs> um, so yeah, but but that being said, I I think all of those things can be true at the same time. I also think that it was probably partially factional and actually other people have not got away with, you know, saying things that were considerably less bad. So, so yeah, I, I think w why not everything uh, at the same time? I think all of it was kind of true. Uh, Graham Jones, former MP for Hindburn and now standing again in Hindburn, has also been suspended for referring to fucking Israel and saying that British citizens who fight for the IDF should be locked up because it's against the law, uh, which, which it isn't. Given the anger over Israel's actions in Gaza, I mean, is it has that made it harder to draw a line between criticism of Israel and anti-Semitism, which has always been something that has been hotly debated, but is it sort of harder than ever now? 
It is. And I think what doesn't help is that the situation has changed a lot over the past few months as well. So I think if on October 8th, someone has said fucking Israel and said anyone going to fight for the IDF, you know, uh, should not be allowed to. I think that would that would have been a very, very clear cut case of saying, OK, well, you're clearly a nutter and there's clearly something wrong there because, you know, Israel has just been attacked and that's your reaction. I think several months into this war and seeing the way actually Israel and the IDF are behaving right now and have been behaving for the past weeks and months. I'm not convinced that A, you know, A, I'm not convinced that's a, an opinion that's unreasonable to have. And B, I don't believe it's so beyond the pale that it should get you um, struck out entirely. So no, I, I completely agree. I think um, it's a it's a really, it's a really complicated situation. Here's, yeah, like, you know, no, no one had ever said that before. And here I am. I'm not afraid to tell you the truth, Dorian. The Middle East is complicated, um, as Marie Lacan. We'll put that on the socials. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but to put it bluntly, is the left, I mean, most obviously Galloway, but also kind of disgruntled Corbynites, exploiting an issue, which I mean, obviously they do care very sincerely about, you mm. know, the, the lives of Palestinians, but it really exploiting this issue to, to get Starmer, who they've been trying to get for ages? Oh, yes and no. I, I, I think there's actually a fair bit of legitimate anger from the kind of non-Krangs bit of the left of the Labour Party in that, you know, that, that there was definitely a war waged on them for a very long time. And some mm. stuff was definitely unreasonable. You know, people who lost their Labour memberships because once seven years ago, they liked one tweet by Caroline Lucas, you yeah, know, yeah. etc. So yeah, I think yeah, yeah. there was definitely absolutely zero tolerance whatsoever for quite a long time. And what was said by the leadership and, you know, and the supporters was, you know, but this is just about anti-Semitism and just saying that, you know, we will have no tolerance whatsoever. So I can sort of see mm. the frustration if you've seen a lot of that stuff happen for years and, and you know, and then suddenly again, someone says something that is clearly batshit anti-Semitic or like, you know, like support mm. some, uh, something that is clearly a very offensive uh, conspiracy theory and for them to sort of get away with it, I can see how you just explode. Like, so, so I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm not convinced it's actually cynical. I think mm. it's just like the last straw. But, but uh, sorry, I, I think what's interesting is that there is a lack of acknowledgement that they've contributed to this. So with everything that happened, they have limited the the space for any future Labour leader mm. to take a position on Israel-Palestine stuff, right? Mm. Because Labour is now under the microscope of mm. this particular accusation. Mm. And so there is a weird interplay there. Um, Matt, a by-election campaign in Greater Manchester has somehow become about foreign policy in the Middle East, uh, to the bemusement of some voters there. This is a region where around two dozen Labour councillors have resigned over Gaza. Do you think, given the intensity of feeling, given how long the war has gone on, that this was sort of, that there is an inevitability over, not what Ali said, but but the way that this is sort of playing out on such a foreign policy level? I, I think... Well, I don't think it was inevitable that it was going to blow up because had he not said those things, I think they could have fought the by-election in a oh, much no, more... Oh, no, no, but, but Galloway has already made it about that. No, of course, but, but that's what I mean. But, but I think Galloway has made it about that, but it would have been much easier for people to sort of say, well, that's just Galloway being Galloway, doing mm. the thing he always does, trying to rile up a particular community, particular part of a particular community. Uh, and they could have seen him a bit more as a sort of crank. But... Unfortunately, this has now brought it completely right into the centre ground. Labour are always struggling with this with this sort of issue, particularly this issue. It's obviously so sort of totemic uh, for so many people within the Labour Party um, that it's and it's been as Alex said, it's been such a big story in the Corbyn years. It was such a sort of big issue that any little crack of 
suggestion that there's something mm. going on here. It was always going to blow up. But now they're in this terrible position where they're sort of being accused of still sort of secretly riddled with anti-Semitism, but also uh, genocidal Zionists. Yeah. Like, well, at I the same time. I feel like Keir Starmer's basically, essentially he has been too decisive and then not decisive enough or vice versa. Like he initially when the um, terrorist attack happened uh, on October 7th, that he obviously had a reaction that was, you know, he's got to be very firm. He's got to be behind the government. He's got to be very firmly pro-Israel in that, that situation. Um, and I think most people understood that. But unfortunately, there was that LBC interview early yeah. on, which where he, whether he quite misspoke or he said, maybe yeah. he was answering the wrong question, whatever, we all know what that, what I'm talking about, that that means that that has been used as a stick to beat him. And even though now he does have a, a much more, um, you know, pro ceasefire viewpoint, and he's kind of very much saying there needs to be a sustainable ceasefire, that is not something that people are hearing. He, he was very, maybe a bit too quick to jump straight into the most sort of positive pro-Israel thing straight away, mm. and then took just a little bit too long to kind of get back from that. And then the same things happened with this, but in reverse. He's taking too long to make the decision. Um, Marie, Galloway uh, has done this before. He's done it in Bethel Green in 2005, Bradford West in 2012, Batley and Spen less successfully in 2021. Now he's saying Starmer is in the pocket of Israel and so on and so forth. Um, now, I'm just wondering what you think, well, that could actually happen here. Just for context, Rochdale um, was a safe liberal seat for 20 years under alleged paedophile Cyril Smith the curse of Rochdale. Um, but it's normally Labour and seemed like it was pretty nailed on for Labour despite all of the... Mm. Now, now what? Would you be confident in putting money on the result? I would be confident putting an amount of money I would not be very sad to lose, I would say. I, I think, you know, like, it, it's a really Go hard on. one to guess. But on? So I reckon, like, like, I'd chuck in a tenner. I know it's a tenner on Labour. Right. Um, so, yeah, no, so I, I would well, say... not Labour, but... So as are oh, still yes, winning oh this seat. Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. So is he, like, no, Labour, no, not Labour is where... So I would say the I'm candidate not, formerly known as. Yes, no, exactly. <laughs> so, so I would not say... I'm entirely confident he's going to right. win. I think it's the most likely outcome still just about. Um, uh, and by-elections, we noticed last year, largely about spin, because the narrow loss in Uxbridge eclipsed two impressive wins uh, that I can't mm. off the top of my head name, although I... Yeah, which proves your point. I yeah. can name Uxbridge. Froome. Something in Froome. Oh, Somerton and Froome. Somerton and Froome was one of them, Froome. Yeah. Oh, is it Froome? Froome. Delightful. Yeah. <laughs> I only know that because I was there recently. Yeah. So if and people will probably notice by the time they hear hear the um the podcast um labor wins in wellingborough and kingswood is that just going to sort of be squashed is the excitement going to be squashed by all this rochdale drama oh absolutely and i think there's two things here so you're correct in saying that by elections are just about spin and you know and it's usually even quite fun like it usually reaches a fever pitch the day before you know when the tories are like well you know if if we don't lose by twenty thousand, it will be a big you know thing yeah, for yeah. us. And it's like, are you insane? And so I think it's partly that. I think it is also to be frank. And going back to the um, the previous uh, batch of by elections, it's just that Labour really loves talking about how much it hates Labour. And like fundamentally, I think what happened in Uxbridge, the Uxbridge, the kind of like uh, super by election day. Uh, was that it would not have been hard for the Labour Party to go, but look, the Tories are fucked. You know, we won this seat and, you know, the Tories have completely collapsed electorally, et cetera, et cetera, even in kind of like seats where normally they do really well. Instead, what they did, well, instead what they did was to, you know, take 
branches, you know, of leaves and they just beat themselves in front of the entire media for like 36 hours nonstop. So, and you know, predictably, the media talked about that and did not talk about it. So I think it's partly spin, but I think it's also partly the Labour Party could not help but just hate itself. Um, which is, is it frustrating? Not for me to say. Nobody but, hates uh, them more. Maybe Labour hates Labour more than Liz Truss hates Labour. Oh, 100%. Oh, okay. <laughs> absolutely. There is no doubt in my heart. I had drinks with Labour MP recently and they went and in the most like, poignant voice I'd ever heard. They just went, I just hate the Labour Party. <laughs> and it was wow. like, oh, wow. And yet here you are, an elected member of Parliament. Uh, <laughs> um, Alex, Sky News correspondent John Craig wrote this. Did you read this piece? Yeah, yeah, I did. Yes, yeah, so this is Starmer's worst crisis as leader, far worse than um, defeats in, in Hartlepool and Uxbridge, and possibly a turning point for the Tories. Is he overdoing it a bit? Am I missing something? I mean, everything could be a turning point, I guess, um, especially if as a journalist you're desperate for something to be a turning point. It seemed like the first chance that journalists had had for a long time to go, could because, Tory come back? Because, you know, t- a, t- an election where with a 20-point differential is very hard to make exciting, yeah. so it's really hard work as a journalist. And so there seemed to be a certain kind of relish or, uh, about jumping on the story. But But I think... It also makes dark what we have known for many, many years, that much of the media, many voters, hold Labour to an entirely different standard than they do the Conservatives. I mean, on this week of all weeks, it took the Conservatives six years and one month to suspend Peter Bone from the point those allegations were made. And even as we record, they are asking constituents to vote for his girlfriend to replace him. For, the, for for Rishi Sunak, this scandal would just be Tuesday. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Morning. But I, will also <laughs> say, but, but I will also say what I said throughout the Corbyn years, right, because we have to be even-handed, that that certain politicised quarters of the press have weaponized the, the issue of anti-Semitism, but that does not mean it's not a real issue, right? It is a potent tool precisely because it is a real issue. So I'm not excusing any conduct. I think Starmer is under a fair amount of scrutiny right now. I just wish that newfound reporting zeal Mm -hmm. might extend to maybe holding the fucking government to account just occasionally. Well, does it make it worse? Because, I mean, as we saw when, when... Uh, Sunak made that transphobic joke. It was in the context of um, having a go at Starmer for flip-flopping. Now, this has happened, this kind of reversal on whether or not to go ahead with Ali's candidacy follows the £28 billion U-turn. So again, is it it sort of, I mean, those two things are completely separate. Yeah, but... Is is that the real danger there, that it just seems that Starmer can't make up his mind? Whereas, whereas, as you said, when it comes to expelling uh, people... (laughs) members and stuff his whole thing has been like no actually i am very sort of tough and decisive and is it sort of just these are the pieces of a picture yes and you may remember that we discussed this straight after axbridge um where i said that labor are making a a horrible category error they think that these wedge issues are about the issues The Conservatives are not going to run on trans rights. They're not going to run on ULES. They're going to run on Starmer being inconstant and indecisive. Mm. The reason they throw these wedge issues in is to create noise in the benches behind him and force him into wavering from his position. That's the only thing that can change a 20-point difference, right? 
I'd be very interested to see, you know, what the consequences of this are a few months down the line. You know what I mean? Because yeah. it always, it obviously people get very excited in the heat of a crisis yeah. and they just go, oh, this is, it's the beginning of the end. And maybe there are going to be these sort of cracks in the Labour coalition. Maybe voters are suddenly going to go, oh, these people seem like a mess again. My guess is But I don't know. I suspect not. My Let's guess see. Not. Ian Dunt, a very good piece on this where he thinks basically, when has there been like a month without yeah. 20 Tory cock-ups? The next one will come along in 10 days' time and I don't, just erase this. I don't know the man. Is he, <laughs> is he good? He's quite good. He's quite good. Yeah, I'll check him nice. out. Now let's have a question from one of our Patreon backers in But Your Emails. If you support us on Patreon, you too can submit a question for the panel. This is from Darren Fletcher. Liz Truss says Britain is full of secret conservatives, people who agree with her but don't want to admit it because they think it's not acceptable in their place of work or their school. I forgot to mention dinner parties, Darren. With polls as recently as a few years ago seriously underestimating Tory support, is there a significant danger that the polls are a lot closer than they seem? I would call this the revenge of the shy Tory. Mm-hmm. Panic, right? Who remembers 2015? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I, can I go out on record and say I don't think there are loads of people who secretly agree with Liz Truss? <laughs> specifically. <laughs> specifically her. Yeah. I think that's my main <laughs> takeaway from that. When she said there are loads of people who secretly agree. I think maybe, yes, I think maybe we live in a conservative country perhaps, but I don't think they all agree with you. I like the way, though, that she's pitching in her head. It's sort of that we are in such the kind of the iron heel of left-wing <laughs> politics yeah. that people are scared of, of being fired or, or rounded up yeah. if they if they just go, I would like lower taxes. Mm. Um, so that's what she thinks. <laughs> is just like, she's basically going, my beliefs are so hateful and toxic that people are embarrassed to share them. Not mm. just on a, some kind of like loony lefty campus, mm. but just like anywhere. So... I find that quite weird messaging. Does anybody think that there could be something in like people going, oh, I really do like the Tories, but that sounds awful, so I'm not going to say it? Oh, I... So first of all, I'd like to say there's a tweet I love on what you're talking about, which is conservative going, and I can't believe, you know, like today's world, I can't even have my conservative beliefs, you know, out in the world anymore. Like, what has the world come to? And the other guy going like, well, but you know, you, you can still say you want, you know, lower taxes and stuff. Like, it's fine. And he's like, no, not those beliefs. You know the ones. You know the ones. No, I, I'm going to go with no but in that I don't think there are currently any shy Tories just absolutely desperate to vote for Rishi Sunak, especially because I think Rishi Sunak is entirely, you know, harmless compared to especially his predecessor, but like his two predecessors, really. Um, but I could see... I, I think it could be easy for Labour to look at the polls now and be like, ha, 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 this is it for, you know, like we're going to be the new, new Labour. We're going to be in power for a million years. And some of them are already talking about the second term and stuff. Oh. I could see, and that, and that is a big, big if, Jesus Christ. But if the Tories don't go completely insane in opposition and actually elect a leader who's quite reasonable and centre-right, I could actually see the Tories polling quite well again quite quickly. Yeah, I think that they, people, it's not that suddenly everyone's decided, all these people who decided they hate conservatism, mm. but they mm. do hate the version that Liz Truss proposed. Or radical conservatism. I, yeah. You see, I think we might see the reverse. Ooh. I think the Labour share is underestimated in the polls because we've 
first of all, because polls have wait, are weighted now to adjust for precisely that effect. Mm. And whenever polling experts do that, the opposite thing happens. They tend mm. to over-adjust. Mm. Secondly, because there was a recent poll with a very large sample, I think maybe Delta, I'm not sure, but it was like 8,000 people. Mm. And a quarter of the people who still intend to vote Conservative also thought it's, a it's time for a change mm -hmm. of government. And I'm not sure whether in the privacy of the polling booth that won't turn to few cheeky votes for Labour, actually. And third, and most importantly, I think winning horse syndrome. People mm. don't want mm. to back a loser. And, and you know, they want to feel part yeah. of a changing wave, uh, which is why, um, basically, landslides happen, landslide yeah. elections happen, because people are swept up with the excitement. I mean, I think that Darren's question is one of a genre of questions called, could the Tories still win? Mm. My answer is always, no. <laughs> this is as doomed a party as I've ever seen in my lifetime. It is disintegrating at a faster rate than John Major's government, you mm. know, in 96, 97. And I understand why people are scared, you know, uh, because it would be obviously really bad if the Tories won. Um, but it's just, I've not seen a scintilla of evidence. And it literally, if you're, if you're having to sort of just, if you're, if you're having to imagine like phantom Tories um, to, to sort of support that fear, then maybe it is just fear. Mm. Peter Mandelson was one of the key architects of New Labour. Now a Labour peer, the so-called Prince of Darkness is still influential. But how influential? Andrew Marr wrote a piece in the New Statesman about the significance of Mandelson's return to Labour's inner circle, while at the same time admitting Starmer hasn't had a substantial political conversation with Peter Mandelson since last summer. There's similar uproar on the left every time Tony Blair opens his mouth. One senior Corbynite told Politico after last autumn's reshuffle, this is the Blairite and the Mandelson set. It's like, it's like a Mandelbrot set reference, <laughs> one for the maths guys. Uh, they are now driving this project. There is no ambiguity now. Meanwhile, at the PopCon launch, Trussites implied that the Tories had failed to unravel New Labour's influence and we were still living in Blair's Britain. Miriam Cates, a very sensible MP, wrote a piece for The Telegraph called Tony Blair is still ruining Britain. After all this time, why do these figures still exert such fascination and are their opponents suffering from New Labour derangement syndrome? Marie, this is something I've literally just made up for a podcast. <laughs> Is there something in it? No, you're just mental. <laughs> um, no, no, I, I do think there is actually something in it. Um, yes. yes. <laughs> Keep the tape rolling. <laughs> um, so I do think there's a point there, but I'm not, I, I'm not sure it's a derangement syndrome in that actually I do think there is some truth to it. Like, I, I do think, so if, if you see, you know, that that's the very nerdy stuff no one normal cares about, but if you look at who's been joining, especially, you know, like Keir Starmer's office or even working for shadow uh, cabinet ministers, etc., more often than not, you'll see, you know, some bloke who worked for Blair, who worked for Mandelson, who worked for Brown. Mm. Like, they just all coming back. It's not even a really like new generation of like bright young Labour things. Now, there are some of them, but very often the quite senior people are all going to be people who worked for Blair, who worked for Mandelson, who worked for those people. Um, and also, but even stuff, so I found that quite striking at Labour conference last year. So the Tony Blair Institute, which is obviously like the qu quite fancy 
uh, think tank now. Like the they organised drinks, and and they these were definitely I remember the kind of like sexiest drinks of the evening. Like the guest list was incredibly tight. Like mm. I was not invited, mm. um, which which I'm fine about. It's fine, <laughs> um, you know. But it was very much because I feel like a labour conference is about who organises what events, who goes where, who gets invited right. to what, etc. And I remember being very struck by like, ooh, ooh, the TBI. Like these are the sexy drinks this year. So, so, we, so, so I think is it really a derangement syndrome if it's actually sort of happening? Well, but um, I wonder whether it's the focus on those two individuals because like I said this Andrew Marr piece which is largely about the Labour leadership sort of you know caution and conservatism and there was a lot about Labour but there was actually very little about Mandelson even though he was in the like mm. the headline um, and so I wonder whether you know that Mandelson's personal like he's not whispering in Starmer's ear mm. but is it more like one one step removed so there I would, are people yeah. from his for entourage. entourage. Yeah. I would yeah. not be surprised at all if, yeah, people who know and talk to Mandelson a lot end up talking a lot to Lotto. I think Mandelson specifically, presumably, is just because like, he's a proper character in the way that actually the Labour Party has not had a proper like Westminster character for quite a long time, I think. The press tried it with Seamus Mill, but it didn't really stick. Um, obviously, on, on the Tory side, they love Dominic Cummings because... Because we love the, you know, we love the idea of the kind of like very clever shadow individual. What's he doing? He's somehow everywhere. He's clever than cleverer than all of them. Like that's. Like I think it is partly. Yeah, no, exactly. I think it's partly that the British press, but 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 also more broadly, the kind of like Westminster bubble just loves that very specific genre of character. Who is I will point out <laughs> always a white man. By the way, it is always a white guy. He likes that um, though. He he really likes that because he actually quite enjoys still being called the Prince of Darkness. And I wonder whether part of the reason why people are thinking that he's sort of maybe sort of more, you know, directly active than he is, is because he like he wants that. He just likes think people thinking that he's sort of everywhere. I'm sure that he's there, even if he's not actually doing that much. He's probably just sitting, you know, in the complete darkness with the curtains drawn, <laughs> stroking a cat. <laughs> <laughs> I've just I just wondered, is there something in the fact that if you look at the rest of Blair's um, government, they've all gone into like reality TV and stuff and like Ed Balls is presenting GMB and it feels like there's a lot of the mystique and the kind of status and the power has gone from a lot of those people. Whereas Mandelson has done a bit less of that. He's sort of stayed a bit in the shadows. There's been a few interviews and things, but I can't think of him. I don't think he's presented a show about trains or something. He hasn't sort of come out and be like, I'm just a normal bloke like the rest of you, which I feel like has happened to quite a lot of those mm. people. But I think but, there's also something, because even people who are still obviously in politics, and you're Gordon Brown, but Gordon Brown, he's very sort of straight up. He's like, these are the things I'm concerned about and I'm going to try and use my influence, uh, you know, to, mm. to, to affect policy. Yeah. And it's like, you can't really, because there is something I think quite, and it, not that there's no truth in it, but there's a sort of slightly paranoid conspiracist vibe that seems to circle around Mandelson. Mm. And you can't really get around Gordon Brown because it's just like, well, he's just saying it on the news. <laughs> well, is that maybe because we don't quite know what he wants, Mandelson, in the way that we do know what Gordon Brown wants? He's, yeah, yeah. you know, child poverty and things like that are very much his, his campaigns. Whereas I don't think I've ever quite known, apart from get labour into power. power. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what does Mandelson want? I don't know. Nuclear power. <laughs> Eternal life. <laughs> Alex, uh, moving on. Uh, to big tone, we saw during Brexit that even when Blair had a good and sensible point, and obviously not all his points are good and sensible, he made people very angry. Um, is that just the legacy? Let's talk about just in labour circles now. Is that just the legacy of the Iraq war? Or is it something else? Is it a more broad objection no, to him, no, to new labour? Do you know, I think it's a combination of things because whenever he speaks, I think, who is your audience? Who are you talking to? 
So people on the left will forever be annoyed with him about Iraq and consider it unforgivable, and quite rightly so. People on the right will never forget the hurt of 13 years out of power. I mean, you know, conservatives circa 2010 are about where we are now psychologically, and I just want you to internalize that mm. and think whether you will ever forgive that in, say, Boris Johnson in 10 years' time. I won't. And then the big bunch of people who are actually agree with him are his natural allies are from his political wing of the party are probably thinking that's a good point. Why don't you let someone else fucking make it? Because you're killing <laughs> mm. it at the moment. So so I can't see a constituency that that wants him to make that point. That's the problem, right? And to to look at the sort of the conspiracist version of Blair, the Miriam Cates piece. Includes the claim. The Equality Act 2010 became a flagship piece of new Labour legislation that would embed leftist identity politics into our public institutions, paving the way for the ideological capture of our school, civil service, and NHS, which is your classic kind of like anti woke paranoia. Mm. It's not like certain people have moved into that job, they've been captured. Is there something about him, like even the Tony Blair like institute, the kind of and his ease with the sort of Davos circles? Is there something about him more than like a Gordon Brown or a John Major, that does inspire this sense that sort of he is one of the secret, still one of the secret rulers of the world. I, no, look, I, I mean, that would be to credit these people with believing this stuff. And I don't think for one moment that Alistair Heath or, um, you know, you, David I Frost think Kate's does. thinks... <laughs> Kate does. Well, so that's what I was going to say. Crazy. I think Alistair Heath and David Frost and people like that don't believe it, but are writing it for the Miriam Cates of this world and the Liz Trusses well, of this world. Well, then it's a blame and thing. Like all of these it's of a way of semi-conspiracy theories, them, a way of basically. going, well, it's not our fault yeah, we yeah, can yeah. do this stuff. What yeah. can we do? I mean, there's this point in in her piece, isn't there, Miriam Cates' piece, where she says, you might say, Tories yeah, have yeah. been in power I since mean, 2010. Why haven't we done anything? And that's a fair point. But the thing I find striking with all of this is just the difference with Thatcher. I can't stop sort of comparing that, you know, she was so confident. I mean, any leader that is in place for more than a decade, like mm -hmm. Thatcher Major or Blair Brown, will change the country they run. That's what happens. So confident was she in her uh, tenure and her ideology that she claimed Blair as her credit, mm -hmm. you know, as her greatest creation. So good insecure are this lot that they still feel victimized by someone who hasn't been in politics in almost 20 years and still feel he's not letting them play. Because I know that Tony Blair himself um, sort of polls quite quite badly um, for various reasons. But I wonder whether what people think of New Labour, the general public, because I think quite a lot of people now are looking at the state of the economy and the public realm between 97 and 2010 quite fondly. You know, and thinking, oh, things sort of seem to be working. Oh, I'm one of them. I mean, same with Sunak's just inane latest slogan back 
to square one with labor. All I can think is, Jesus, where do I sign up? Well, because there's all those graphs where you look at basically square one and suddenly it's just like investment in schools, down, yeah. you know, childcare, <laughs> down. And then just collapses after... NHS waiting list, down, uh, up, uh, down. Yeah, everything, I mean, after, everything like after 2010 and it's just like certain parts of British society just seem to fall off a cliff. Yeah. And it's like, well, if that's square one... Uh, yeah, please, thank you. Please, thank you. <laughs> Matt, we've talked uh, on the podcast before before about Starmer's personal interest in previous Labour leaders such as Harold Wilson and Clement Attlee. I mean, there's not a huge pool of Labour PMs yes. to choose from, but he's certainly kind of interested in, in them. But it always comes back to Blair. It's almost like the only possible comparison can be Blair. Why is that? Well, I think it's because, as you say, there isn't a big pool and there's recency bias. Nobody in this room was born, I don't think, when... Uh, any of the other Labour leaders were in power, like let alone. I'm actually 87. I can totally believe that. Hang on, <laughs> I was no, no, I was. I was born during. Well, I was okay. born in the in the in the in the 70s. So but you didn't, I, I probably had didn't know him, like know of him, unless we you were, were really a kid. Good friends, Jim, you were, Cal you know. Jim Callaghan was one of the first people that I ever sort of saw on the news. Just like that guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He seems. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> but but I, I did the maths. And you have to be, I mean, that is a, we just need to pause on that, I think. <laughs> Clip that. No, he seemed like, he was, he seemed like somebody that I should know about. Yeah, yeah, which yeah. is fair enough because he was the Prime Minister. Prime Minister. Um, but I do, I do think that, but yeah, you, you have to be basically kind of in your 60s to have lived at a time yes. as yeah. an adult with a, you know, with a Labour Prime Minister. And so I just think, yeah, most people just don't, can't, can't really remember any of those other leaders and it doesn't make sense to them and it's and it feels like a very long time you know it feels like not just a long time ago but it feels like a totally different world whereas i think yeah blair is in this world and he's still around as you say still making you know statements and still doing stuff uh, whether or not any of it's good or not um so it makes it and also he's a winner he's the only he's the only one who won three times you know that's that's a great thing to be if you're a Labour leader. It doesn't so, happen very often. So for the people that, that don't mean it as a compliment, do you think the idea is that Starmer is actually like Blair and the whole idea that he wasn't like really, he wasn't really sort of Labour um, or rather that he's sort of weak and easily manipulated by, you know, the new Labour old guard? I think it's one of those questions where it depends on who's making the accusation. I think there are some who think, one side of that and some who think the other and I think both sides that's why it's and some who think both yeah. weirdly mm. yeah oh absolutely yeah yeah. I mean we're living in a very in a world where that is often the case I think where people make bad faith accusations two at a time just to see which one sticks <laughs> did you know that they once did a study of people who believed in conspiracy theories and they would ask them different theories and see if they which ones they said yes to and they found out that people that thought that Princess Diana had been murdered by uh, British intelligence also were more like would like to believe that Princess Diana had faked her own death. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Completely, and that the same thing, yeah. and same thing about nine eleven, yeah. and some Bin Laden, like anything. They they were literally just like, well, both of these completely contradictory things. Yeah, are true. Throw, it's the throw enough shit at the wall theory, it's, isn't it? Brains right. for you. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's yeah. Sadly, <laughs> let's leave my new book on uh, <laughs> on neuroscience. That's, that's brains, that's for, you. brains <laughs> for you. Malcolm Gladwell, eat your heart out. I think. I think also. I think maybe it's partly because Starmer hasn't been in politics that long that there is a bit of a sense of the people. You know, they they look at him as a uh, a lawyer, but they don't necessarily see him as a political figure, mm. and so they're not quite sure where he comes from. He's not obviously from one part of the party or not, and so I think perhaps there is a worry 
from some that you know he he is manipulable that 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 someone like a Mandelson or whoever could come along and say look I've done this before I've got 30 years of experience mm-hmm. I know the the secret way to do the the right thing um I don't know I mean I I don't know whether that's true or not I mean the Andrew Marr piece I found very I found it very weird that piece I I found it it was sort of Andrew Marr going off in a sort of bit of a fantasy of what he hoped Starmer was like. Mm. And it felt felt like I wasn't sure how much of it was based on truth and how much of it was him mm. going, well, hopefully Starmer's really steely and he'll, he knows he makes decisions very uh, carefully. and Fairly really radical. And it was a week later that all of this, you know, Rochdale stuff blew up. And you think, well, I'm not sure he's proven himself to be the most steely, careful mm. communicator ever. You know? um, Alex, her friend Aisha Hazarika. That's Baroness Hazarika to you. Yes. Scumbag. That is crazy. <laughs> Can't no, believe Aisha, if you're of, listening, we're incredibly proud of yeah. you. I just thought that maybe they could have, you know, chosen more than one. Uh, <laughs> oh, God, what now? I know. You know. A group peerage. Yeah. <laughs> just all of us at the same time, like, hello. Maybe we'll spread downwards. Yeah, we'll like get one very, very big ermine, <laughs> just like wrapping around yeah, like a circus be, Yeah, tent. that's what this studio needs is more fur. Yeah. We need more, yeah. It could be Baron brackets S. Oh God! What now? Yeah. And then we could sh- <laughs> we could share it out, yeah. which meant that we'd always one of us would always be yeah. in the law. Oh God! Yeah. Who now? So yes, Baroness Hazarika, uh, top politico. It is not Blairites versus Corbynites anymore. It is more the dominance of Starmer right now. Remember, this was this was back in yeah, autumn. Yeah, sure. um, is it is it just hard for people to buy the idea of Starmerism as a distinct? approach because I just constantly see the framing as not necessarily Starmerites. Some people say Starmerites versus Corbynites, but a lot of people will basically sub Blairites. Yeah, 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 that's true. Um, And I don't think it's right. I think Starmerism is something different. And I think the the reason people have difficulty visualizing it right now is because it's not based on economics, a particular school of economics. It's not based on a particular social ideology. It is based around the idea of public service and ethos and sort of doing the right thing and working hard for your country and that sort of thing, which means you... It's literally impossible to experience it until he is in charge. Because there are distinctions like, for example, uh, you know, remember the phrase Tony's cronies. Um, And there was a, you know, and and Mandelson's thing about people getting filthy rich. And and that does seem to kind of not be in line with Starmer. Mm. Starmer Mm. does seem to be really quite upright about things like corruption and so on. And I think that that is the distinct thing that strikes me about him that um, he believes very strongly in sort of public service, almost like a a Protestant, you know, self-punishing mm-hmm. sort of, um, uh, self-denying public self-punishing service. Self-punishing perfect but, Labour Prime Minister. Yeah, <laughs> yeah but, but you understand what I'm saying, yeah. right? That, that yeah. you know, he seems quite ascetic in, in the same way that I think Gordon Brown was. So I think if, if he's close to any politician, it's Gordon Brown, interestingly. So he's a brown knight mm, yeah. more than anything else. Well, that's my theory. It just Ama- occurred to me. Do you like it? Yeah. Well, brown knights don't really get swept up in the whole obsession with new labor. Mm. You know, he seems to have sort of escaped. Uh, Marie, finally, 
is, is the advice of Blair and Mandelson worth listening to? Because what I found quite interesting is, is, is in the Ma piece, he sort of suggests that, that they're the voices of sort of caution and conservatism. But a lot of the time, what they seem to be saying is actually, we need a more radical narrative. You can't lose momentum. You know, Blair's view of idea of radicalism is going to be different from the, the left's, for example. But I mean, is that a slight sort of misreading that the old new Labour people are actually just going, you know, do as little as possible? Hmm. I, th- I think their advice is definitely worth taking with a pinch of salt because I do think that some of the stuff... So I can remember, I think, uh, Blair, what was it, last year, I think, did that big speech on tech and the future of tech and he AI, etc. He God, he loves tech. You know, but it, but it was a bit like, oh, you are kind because of talking about... Because he will about... live forever <laughs> as an AI yeah. sort of intelligence God. in the cloud. AI Blair just in yeah. your house. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but 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 I, I, I don't know. Yeah, it, it did sound I don't know slightly out of step with current day politics, which is not I think you know like it, it is entirely normal because he his at his height you know he was in politics over twenty years ago. Uh, so yes, no, so I agree. I, I think it is not necessarily just the case of you know kind of like Mandelson and Blair on Keir Starmer's shoulders going don't ever do anything and smash the left. Like, that's not quite that. I think Neil Kinnock probably told that to Starmer, but um, but you know not those two. Um, but you know. Is it still the case that you should listen to everything they're saying and treat it as gospel? In the way that I think certainly some centre-left commentators seem to do. Mm. I'm not sure. No, mm. no, no names uh, no. given, but we can all, yeah. Good news, your favourite history nerds are back. Yes, we at We Are History have been trawling the history shelves of our local bookshops. Well... I have, John. You mostly went round finding your books and moving them to the front of the displays. If I can find them, it's a bonus. We are ready to tell you all about what we've learned, from the revolting French to some revolting women. Via some Brits abroad and a foul-mouthed Irishman. So, download We Are History. Our laughable attempt at a silly history podcast. With me, John O'Farrell. And me, Angela Barnes. Wherever you get your podcasts. We've reached the end of the show. So what are the stories that have gone under the radar this week? Matt, kick us off. So this is something that um, I saw on Twitter that apparently Arts Council England have changed their advice to arts um, organisations to be wary of, quote, overtly political or activist statements made in a personal capacity Mm. by people linked with them as this might expose them to reputational risk and breach their funding agreements. And it just seems to be... It's not quite clear to me how horrible this is, how, you know, immediately people jumped in and said, well, this is Orwellian, this is, you know, this is fascism, whatever. And it's not quite clear to me whether it's the Arts Council just sort of clarifying something that they always did, whether it is maybe a government suggested thing of just like, hey, just and obviously in the context of Gaza and everything, I think it's probably people saying, just be careful about what you tweet because that might look bad for you. And that's that is bad. I think if you've got a situation, particularly in the arts, you've got a situation of, Artists who are often very outspoken mm. about things, um, you know, because they they wear their hearts on their sleeves, and the idea that making a political statement, even, you know, as long as it's a not a completely you know inciting statement, as long as it's something vaguely reasonable, that that could somehow damage your funding. That seems pretty bad it to me. It seemed like, I mean, I don't expect there's going to be just sort of draconian sort of rules and purges and so on. It seemed to me just like a sort of institutional neurosis. In action, it's just like, can everyone just stop talking about shit that gets us into trouble? Yeah, mm. that makes our days more difficult. 
So like, I didn't like it, but I, I, I wouldn't, I, I wasn't necessarily like, this is the terrifying new future of. No, but I think arts, it's, the, it's about fund. I think that's when funding gets involved, yeah, obviously there's mentioned. always that thing of, because arts funding is already very controversial in terms mm. of the amount of paperwork and, mm. and people get funding who probably shouldn't deserve it, don't deserve it and vice versa. And this just feels like an extra little thing of like, oh, and also if you've tweeted about something controversial, that might also go Has a rival you. comedian ever got funding that he didn't deserve from the Arts Council? Is this person... <laughs> Do you have a list and would you like to well, list them now? <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, Arts Council, the Arts Council until very recently didn't ever cons- consider comedy an art. They wouldn't, they wouldn't take any applications for comedy. Wow. And that's changed, I think, fairly recently. They have now started, started taking applications. But I've, I have Ricky, never applied. Ricky Gervais' stand-up special. Going, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, this is art. Yeah. yeah. It's definitely art. Uh, Marie? Uh, so the government is finally clamping down on the so-called rough sex uh, defence, uh, so whereby men kill women usually during sex, and they kind of say, oh, well, actually, you know, it was a kind of BDSM thing, so, you mm. know, in order to get a reduced sentence, etc. So campaigners had been working really, really hard for quite some time. Um, and uh, as of today, day of recording, uh, a new statutory aggravating factor uh, is being brought in uh, for offenders who cause death through abusive, degrading, or dangerous sexual behaviour. So meaning that not only are they getting rid of that kind of excuse altogether, but also these killers will receive tougher sentences as well, yeah. uh, which I think is is a really, really good thing. And again, especially because um, that had been an issue talked about for quite some time. So the government is actually doing a thing. Although I will say, slightly weird that they've got that out for Valentine's Day. <laughs> now, out of all the days, they're like, ladies, a <laughs> little gift for you there. <laughs> I'm very surprised that they didn't put a tweet out with Rishi's face on it. Yeah. yeah, a little red rose. Yeah. <laughs> God. Uh, Alex. So farmers did a demo on Saturday in Dover and it was so underreported um, that if you like look up farmers' protest on British News Google, you will get replies about India protest and French protest, but not this one. And it caused massive queues in Dover and they're warning that it will escalate. They're saying that they're already being battered by cheap imports Mm. and that the new rules that came in play at the end of January are really hampering them because for them a lot of inputs are imports like Mm. fertilizer or seed and things like that. Um, No one seems to be listening to them and there was a poll today in Farmers Weekly which I found just utterly Extraordinary because it found that uh, of farmers, 61% would vote Labour, 36% would vote for various other parties, and 5% would vote Conservative. And I, I just think that is such an extraordinary reversal. There were Soviet collective never... farms that were more Tory than that. It, it's <laughs> just, I cannot, and it's genuinely yeah, yeah, flying yeah. under no, the radar, very... and it's like extraordinary. Very weird poll. Um, mine's like a small thing, but I think reveals a bigger thing, um, that a comedian called Paul Curry, uh, asked at the end of his show at Soho Theatre, um, people thinking to sort of stand Mm. up for the Palestinian flag, um, and somebody didn't get up and he was Israeli. And then when he was asked, why didn't you get up? Are you enjoying the show? He said sarcastically. And he goes, I was until the new brought out flag. And then Paul Curry told him to fuck off and get out. And then quite a lot of people in the audience joined in that. The theatre has since apologised, said they won't be booking him again. This is unacceptable, whatever. And inevitably you get the same thing. Well, he goes, well, it wasn't anti-Semitic. It was anti-Israeli or it was anti-supporter of genocide or, or whatever. And I just thought, 
you know, it, it, it's showing me what really worries me about the politics around Gaza is that you can be extremely, I understand why people are so like, so angry and so upset and really sort of disgusted with the way um, the Israeli government and military have handled their response to October the 7th. And yet it doesn't make it okay I think it's a great myth, mm-hmm. and this is the big yeah. problem on, on the left, I think, with anti-Semitism, is that you can just say, well, it's anti-Zionism, and it's like, it's only the evil Jews I don't like, mm-hmm. and then you can do anything you like to them. And it's like, I don't think anybody should be thrown out of a comedy gig for not standing mm-hmm. up for a flag. Like, that seems like a kind of, quite an authoritarian vibe. And you can't just justify it and go, well, I guess he supports genocide. And it's like, well, there might be lots of reasons why you might, the flag might signify certain things. Are we saying ceasefire? Does it mean ceasefire? Does it mean, you know, the flag does not tell you, give you a, a, a one political position that you can either endorse or not endorse. It's a very sort of crude thing. And there was some sort of like mob thinking going on. And I just found it very, very sinister. And of course, none of it, nothing that goes on in the Soho Theatre, great theatre there it is, is going to make any difference to what is happening in Gaza. And it just seems to be creating an air of uh, hostility. And I think that people like, I think theatre responded well, but people like that comedian, it's like they, it is in their gift not to make things worse for people in this country. I saw an interview with a guy to whom this happened and I understood a lot more about it. It's apparently a, a, a wordless show. Right. So it's a sort of yeah, mime a type yeah. thing. Mime, yeah. So there wasn't even, you say, what do you mean by asking right. people to stand for the flag? So he apparently pulled it out with the Ukrainian flag and kind of equated the two. And that's what the, the uh, Jewish person objected to, basically mm. equating what's happening in Ukraine. Well, I think you should be able to say what you want if you want to make that sure, statement on sure. stage. But I just don't think you can ask every member of the audience to endorse what it is that you're saying, or in the case of a mime, not saying. And that flags, I would say, are rather complicated and loaded symbols mm. and not, they don't necessarily well, he mean He said something that things. broke my heart. He said, and as, you know, as we made our way out and people started shouting shame and stuff like that, I saw two other couples duck out of the theatre and I thought to myself, there are the other four Jews in the audience. And, and that just, it really broke my heart. And that's the show. Thank you to Alex. Thank you. Matt. Thank you. Anne-Marie. Thank you. Stick around for the extra bit after Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and a salute to our generous supporters. You can join them and get the podcast early and without ads, plus lots more. Search Oh God, What Now Patreon to find out how. We'll see you next time. Hello and enormous thanks for contributing to our fighting fund to Stuart Kerr, Derek Light and Linda Brino. Hello from me and merci beaucoup to Noel Anderson, James Sarek and Michael Garvey. And a big shout out and many thanks for me for your generosity to Roddy Campbell, Damien Gormley and John Franks. And finally, big thanks for me to new supporters Kay Ludlow and Francis Hutchinson and to a prodigal patron, Greg Barron. We'll see you next time. Oh God, What Now was written and presented by Dorian Linsky with Marie LeConte, Alex Andreu, and Matt Green. The producer was me, Chris Jones. Audio production was by Robin Leeburn. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. Managing editor was Jacob Jarvis. Video production by Jess Harpin, Kieran Leslie, and Mike Bollin with art direction by Mark Taylor and James Parrott. Oh God, What Now 
is a Podmasters production. Tucker Carlson's interview with Vladimir Putin last week got the world's media talking. Carlson clearly wanted Putin to blame NATO and Biden for his invasion of Ukraine, but instead received an interminable history lesson about what Vladislav the Fierce did in 1122. Nobody seemed very happy at the end of it. The coverage of the interview raised a separate question about the ethics of platforming a dictator's justifications for war crimes. But would it be impossible just to ignore it? And is sidelining the pernicious reasoning of powerful people really better than shining a light on it? I remember when the BNP's Nick Griffin appeared on Question Time in 2009 and the ethics of platforming seemed relatively straightforward and in an era of multiple online outlets, they're much muddier. Matt, does the old maxim, all publicity is good publicity, apply to this interview? Uh, I don't know how much publicity the president of Russia needs. I feel like... (laughs) I mean, it got people talking about him and Tucker. It's not an artisan brewery. Exactly. (laughs) It's not like they were like... That was a teaser for the extra bit. If you'd like some more Oh God, What Now every week without ads and a day early, then you can sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £3 a month. You'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else, every Monday morning, tasty merchandise and advance offers for live events. Thanks for listening and see you next week.